So today we're concluding our series, which was just a, a big overview of the book of Genesis, parachuting into specific events and uh, scriptures that are significant to give us a great understanding of the book. So Genesis 50, verse 15, says this, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Well, the book of Genesis answers some of the most important questions in life. Like, where did we come from? Why are we here? Is there a God? If so, what is this God like? Who are we? What does it mean to be human? What's wrong with the world? What is sin? How are we saved from sin? What is the hope in life and the hope after death? Genesis, believe it or not, answers these questions. How about this question? It's a common one in our world today. Why does a good God allow evil and suffering in this world? Have you heard that question before? Very common. That question is used by atheists kind of like their trump card. Like, gotcha Christians? How do you explain that there is a good, perfect, righteous, just God, yet there is so much injustice, suffering, evil, corruption, in this world. How can that happen? Well, you know, Genesis answers that question too. And that question, I believe, is answered in our text this morning. Genesis 50, specifically, verse 20. But before we get there, we've got to remember what the origin of sin and evil is. Where did sin and evil come from? Well, we already studied that. That came from Genesis chapter 3. The event of the fall. We know it where it came from. Came initially through a, a temptation from Satan to Eve, who fell into temptation, and so did Adam, her husband. And because Adam sinned, all have sinned. And because of sin, there is death. And because all men sin, all men die. So we know where it came from, why it's here. We also saw how pervasive sin is in our life. It's not just a little problem that we have. 
Like a little virus that can be taken care of by an antibiotic. No, sin is pervasive. We are corrupt by sin. God looks down at the world in Genesis 6 and he says that um, every thought and intention of man's heart is only evil continually. We are corrupted by sin. See, if we go back to there, then we understand evil, sin, suffering, that's not God's problem. That's our problem. And it's our fault. So we see the problem of evil, where it came from, whose fault it is, but what is the purpose of it? If God is sovereign and in control and governs all things, then what is his purpose through the horrible suffering and evil we see in our world today? Specifically, let me go into your life now. Why does God allow such pain, such evil, such hurt to happen in your life? What is the purpose in your pain, the suffering that you go through? There's a lot of pain in our life that is self-inflicted. What I mean by that is, is it's caused by our own sinful Actions and decisions and lifestyle. Um, Sin has consequences. We know that. And sometimes those consequences affect our lives. But there are times when the hurt is others inflicted. It doesn't come from ourselves, but it comes from outside of ourselves. Maybe you've been fired without cause. Maybe you've been cheated on or lied to by a spouse. Maybe you've been mocked, you've been slandered, you've been persecuted for your faith. Maybe you've been betrayed, abandoned, forgotten by those you trusted. You know that life is hard and people hurt. People hurt. And so what is God's purpose in that? What is God's purpose in my pain? Genesis 50.20 answers that question. Let's remember the context. If you want to split the book of Genesis just into two simple parts, it could be split this way. Genesis 1 through 11 is God's creation and relationship to the whole world. You have four big events, Genesis 1 through 11. You have creation, you have the fall, you have the flood, and you have the Tower of Babel. That is God's relationship to the whole world. He's dealing with nations there. But then from Genesis 12 all the way to the end of the chapter, God deals with one specific family from one person, the chosen one. That is Abraham. And so Genesis 12 through 50 deals with the patriarchs. It's the patriarchal section, the Jewish patriarchs. You have Abraham, you have Isaac, the son of promise, the son of covenant. Then you have Jacob. And then you have Jacob's 12 sons, which become the heads of the tribes of Israel. Now, the final chapters of Genesis focus on the life of just one of those sons. His name is Joseph. Now, if you're familiar with Joseph's story, you know Joseph's life was hard. Joseph suffered unjustly. He was hurt, he was betrayed, he was sold, he was enslaved, he was accused, he was slandered, and he was imprisoned unjustly. 
So he's a great candidate to answer this question. Why does God allow suffering and pain to happen to his people? What is God's purpose in our pain? So Joseph gives us this response, and we're going to just really look at verse 20 this morning. Joseph gives you two truths, two truths that answer that question in our lives. And those two points make up your outline. Point number one, people mean evil for evil. People mean evil for evil. In other words, another way to say it is that people mean evil to harm, to hurt, and to destroy. Look at Genesis 50:20. The first couple of phrases. He says, "As for you, you meant evil against me." Well, who is who are the you? We know the you according to context are Joseph's brothers. That's the you. And Joseph says, "You meant What does that word meant mean? Well, the word meant could be translated as intended or planned. You purposed. You know, the original meaning of that word is interesting. It means to weave a thread. So think about it. When you weave a thread to form a cloth that is intentionally placed, and it is left there in the cloth or in the fabric, Think about somebody weaving thread. And so, what was the thread that Joseph's brothers wove into Joseph's life? You see it in the text. You meant evil. You meant evil. You wove an evil thing into my life. Evil generally means that which is harmful. It includes all kinds of attacks, disaster, trouble that could come into our lives. But it wasn't just that they meant evil. Look back down at the phrase, they meant evil against Joseph. You meant evil against me. So this was evil to attack, evil to harm, evil to destroy. It was an evil action for evil purposes. This was a very evil thing that Joseph was referring to. Let's go back in the story and remember what Joseph's brothers did to him. First of all, the story begins with a father's favoritism. Joseph isn't just one of Jacob's son. He is the number one son, the favored son. And he didn't try hard to hide it. Genesis 37, verse 3, it says, Now Israel, that's the other name for Jacob, he loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made for him a robe of many colors. Here's a lesson, I think, in bad parenting. You may have your favorites, but don't show it. Because naturally, the others get jealous. Verse 4 says, But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. They hated him. And it says they could not even speak 
peacefully to him. Think about that. They couldn't even have a pleasant conversation with their brothers because they hated him. So much that the hate came out of their mouths. It begins with a father's favoritism, but it grows after Joseph tells them of his prophetic dreams, those prophetic dreams that he will rule over them. And the text tells us that they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So hatred is brooding in their hearts. It comes out of their mouths until one day it produces a very evil and wicked action. You remember the story. The brothers went to pasture their father's flock. Jacob sent Joseph to check in on his brothers. And when they saw Joseph coming toward them, they, the text says, they conspired to kill him. That's how much they hated him. They were ready to kill their own brother. Reuben, the oldest, interjects and he convinces the others to just throw him into a pit for now and we'll deal with him later. And then they see traitors pass by. And Judah gets the idea, ah, we could get rid of him and make a profit. That's what he says. And so rather than killing their brother, they sell him into slavery to make a buck and also essentially kill him, get rid of him. It's a very wicked thing. So it's one thing to think and to have hatred brew in in your heart and then Another thing for hatred to come out of your mouths and to say slanderous, awful things, but a whole nother level to sell your brother into slavery. I mean, I've seen some sibling rivalries, but this tops them all. This was a very wicked and evil thing that the brothers did. But that's not the only evil thread that was woven into Joseph's life. He was sold to Potiphar, an Egyptian captain. And Potiphar's wife had eyes for Joseph. She tried to seduce him, to sleep with her. Joseph refused. The text tells us that he didn't want to sin against God or sin against his master. And so he was innocent. And he ran away from Potiphar's wife. She grabbed his cloak, screamed, and lied about him coming on to her. Joseph was falsely accused, charged, and sentenced to prison. Another evil thread woven into Joseph's life. But it doesn't stop there. Joseph is in prison, and he interprets the dreams of two fellow prisoners, a baker and a cupbearer. The baker's dream is no good, essentially. Predicts his execution, and it happens. He's executed. The cupbearer's dream is good. It predicts his release And it happens. But before he's released, Joseph pleads with him and says, hey, remember me on the outside. Work to get me out of here. I'm in here unjustly. But the text tells us in Genesis 40, does this resonate with you? It says, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot. And so Joseph remained in prison for two more years. Another evil thread woven into Joseph's life. So he was hated and sold by his brothers. He was fired, falsely accused, and sentenced to prison by a man he never wronged. And he was forgotten by a friend that he helped out in prison. That's what we call a bad hand. (laughs) That's a tough life. 
Joseph suffered injustice. It's hard to relate to that level of injustice, but we can relate with some of it in the sense of, you know, maybe you've been hurt by people you love. Maybe you've been falsely accused by people that you did not wrong. Maybe you've been forgotten by people that you thought cared about you. People mean evil for evil, and it hurts. Why? Why do people do this? Why do they mean evil for evil? We already got the answer why in Genesis. Every thought and intention of man's heart is only evil continually. The Bible says that people mean evil because their hearts are bent toward it. We have a sinful will, a sinful nature that unfortunately intends to hurt. Speaks words, not that we don't mean, but words that we do mean because they come out of our hearts. By nature, people do evil because their hearts are bent toward it. You will be sinned against in this life. You know why? Because you're around people, and people are naturally sinners. But you're not just the victim of sin, you are also a perpetrator and criminal. The Bible says we've all sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. We all have this sinful will within us. This sin nature. We have meant evil for evil. We have hurt other people in our sinful uh, words, in our sinful actions, and even with a sinful attitude. Maybe you've heard the question, the big question asked this way. Why do bad things happen to good people? See, the presupposition of that question is wrong. There are no good people. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Later in that same chapter, there is no one good, not even one. Romans 6.23 tells us what justice is for our sinfulness. Justice is death. And so if you want fair in this life, then you're asking for death because we're all sinners. And what is fair, according to God's cosmic justice system, is that we be punished for our sin. Why do bad things happen to good people? You know, there's only one case in history, one case in history where a bad thing happened to a truly good person. Is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ suffered under the cruel intentions of men. He was struck, he was beaten, he was crucified by men that hated him, yet he was totally innocent. He did no wrong. Truly, truly innocent, truly good, truly righteous. Never once sinned, never once failed like you and I have. Yet he died on the cross to be 
the sacrifice for our sin, to take our punishment upon himself. According to man's justice system, that is totally unjust. That's totally not fair. We deserve to die. Not Jesus, but he who did not sin became sin so that you and I can be righteous. So that by faith in Jesus Christ, we can be credited his perfect life. And so that God would view us as he sees Jesus, good, truly good, righteous. Not because of what we've done, but because of Jesus Christ. And so God's justice was served on that day. His wrath was executed on his own son instead of you and I. So we need to change the question. Why do bad things happen to bad people? Because that is the case. Why do bad things happen to bad people? Well, Joseph's answer to that question with his first truth is that people mean evil for evil. There are sinners in this world. And we sin against each other. You know, it's important for us to not be naive. The Christian life is not free of pain, suffering, or persecution. Do not be naive. You won't escape the evil of this world because you're surrounded by sinners. In fact, you even live with some of them. Don't be naive. You know, one of my seminary professors said, hey, you soon-to-be pastor, the sheep bite. Even brothers and sisters in Christ will hurt you because we're still sinners. Even brothers and sisters in Christ are capable of great evil and can hurt you. We need to learn how to work with sinners, how to live alongside them. And we can learn from Joseph how to forgive. Joseph did forgive his brothers. Holy. He forgave them. We can learn to love sinners. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Love covers a multitude of sins. But we never forget that we are sinners and so are they. And so we're aware of that. And until you leave this cursed earth, that will be the case. So it's important for us to not be naive. People mean evil for evil. The second truth that Joseph presents here, the second point of your outline is God means evil for good. God means evil for good. Look back down at the verse. Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You realize what Joseph just said there? God meant. Well, we know what meant means. Meant means that God intended. God planned. God purposed. God wove a thread into Joseph's life just like the brothers. But what, did, what thread did God weave into Joseph's life? He meant it. Well, what is it? We need to know. It is a pronoun. Did you know that? Got to do some English grammar here for a minute. It's a pronoun that's used as a substitute for a previously mentioned 
noun. If I give you these two sentences, I threw the ball. It went far. What is it in the second sentence? The ball. So we need to understand what it is. And you know what's helpful in the Hebrew language and in the Greek language? The form of the pronoun matches the form of its antecedent. It's noun. It's referent. So the form in the Hebrew language for that it, it's a a third person feminine singular pronoun. What do you think the third person feminine singular pronoun is in the previous phrase? Tell me. Evil. So what did God mean? God meant evil. Well, that sounds strange, doesn't it? That sounds strange even coming out of our mouths. But that's what Joseph said. God means evil. God means trouble. God means suffering. God means things that sometimes hurt, are painful to go through. The same thread that Joseph's brothers weaved into Joseph's life, God weaved into the life of Joseph. He purposed it. He intended it. God made sure that this evil thing happened to Joseph. It's not that God worked with what he got. It's not that he went, oh man, Joseph's brothers did did just a horrible thing to him, and I've got to figure out how to make this work with my plan. No, no, no. God planned it. It's not as if people gave God lemons and he makes lemonade. Sometimes God gives people the lemons. Sometimes God gives you lemons. He purposed it. He planned it. This points to a greater truth that is prevalent throughout all of Scripture. God is sovereign over everything. He governs all things. He's in control of every person, every event, every circumstance, in in history and in your life. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Ephesians 1.11 says, He works all things according to the counsel of His will. All things. Does all things include evil things? Hard things? Painful things? Yes. But here's the difference. There is a difference in these two phrases, a significant one. You meant evil against me. People mean evil for evil, but what does God mean evil for? Good. Good. The end of that thread is different. People mean evil to hurt you, to destroy you, to attack you. God means that 
hard, difficult, evil thing for good. For good. And here is where we see one theological intersection in the Bible. It's a theological intersection because we see both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in the same verse. You mean evil, that's the sinful will of men, but God means evil for good. That's the righteous will of God. And here's a big theological sentence for you. God's righteous will superintends man's sinful will to accomplish his good purpose. God's righteous will, perfect will, good will, superintends man's sinful will to accomplish his good purposes. So God is not culpable. He's not guilty of producing evil. Why? Because the evil's produced within you. Yet God's righteous will superintends your sinful will to use that evil thing for his glory and your good. And how those two intersect in the mind of God will always baffle us. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. Those two truths are true and coincide together in reality. So the brothers hated him and sold him to Egypt to effectively cut him out of their life and make a profit. But God meant it for good. Look at the rest of the verse. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So the brothers hated him, sold him to Egypt. God loves him and sent him to Egypt by the sinful will of his brothers so that the chosen family would be preserved through a famine. You remember the story. Joseph is eventually remembered. He is brought before Pharaoh. He interprets a dream that would predict a seven-year bountiful harvest followed by a seven-year famine. And God gives Joseph wisdom to execute a plan so that Egypt would save the fruit from the seven years of abundance and store them up for the seven years of famine. And, And many nations, not just Egypt, but many nations would flock to Egypt to yield from their storehouses, and those many nations include Jacob and his family. And so that's how the two meet again. Jacob's sons, Joseph's brothers, come for food to be saved through famine. Joseph reconciles with his brothers. He forgives them completely and then offers them land in Egypt and the produce that is stored, and the royal family of God, the chosen family of God is preserved through those seven years of famine. Joseph sees that purpose revealed right in front of him. God's good purpose. Calvin writes this, While these brothers contrived the destruction of their brother, God affected it for their deliverance. How about that? You tried to kill him, but through your act of trying to kill him, God saved you. Wow. God's providence. God's good will. And even when Joseph says this sentence that what you meant for evil, God meant for good, he doesn't see the better that is yet to come for the people of Israel. 
They multiply into a nation in Egypt. They become the nation God promised they would be. And in 400 years, through another suffering event, slavery, a generation will witness the mighty wonders of God be delivered from Egypt and return to their promised land. So there's more good to come through this evil thing that the brothers did. People mean evil for evil, but God means evil for good. He works it out according to his good purposes and according to your good in your life. So what do we do with this account? Well, I want to point out three truths that we can take away from this verse and this event. Three truths for us from this story. Number one, Joseph's suffering points to Jesus' suffering. Joseph's suffering points to Jesus' suffering. In one sentence, Joseph masterfully articulates how God's righteous will superintended man's sinful will to accomplish his good purposes. And you know, Peter does the same thing in Acts chapter 2. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, God's righteous will. He turns around and says, Men of Israel, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, man's sinful will. God's righteous will, superintending man's sinful will to accomplish his good purpose. Of course, that sacrifice would atone for our sins. What Joseph went through was horrible. It produced a great good, but the most atrocious and unjust suffering event in the history of humanity accomplished the most magnificent salvation for humanity. Again, when we witness human suffering or when we experience human suffering, we remember that it's because of sin. And men are responsible for their sin. Sin is a problem and it's man's problem. And the just consequence of sin is death. And so though it's not right that people suffer unjustly at the hands of men, in God's cosmic justice system, we all deserve suffering and death. But... The greatest injustice of human history. Jesus, a truly innocent man, killed on a cross. That thread of suffering was intended by lawless men to kill Jesus. God wove that into Jesus' life to accomplish our salvation. And so the problem of evil, as they call it in apologetics, gets you right to the solution. The gospel. Next time somebody asks you that question to try to corner you, you come right back at them with the gospel. Say, hey, you know what? You want to know what the greatest injustice in human history was? You want to know what the the greatest evil that ever happened to a truly good person was? Let me tell you about Jesus Christ. Joseph's suffering points to Jesus' suffering. It gets us so quickly to the gospel because Joseph 
Although innocent in these accounts, we know Joseph was a sinner, just like you and I. The events don't highlight his sin. But we can go to the truly innocent man, Jesus Christ, who suffered for our sins. So Joseph's suffering points forward to Jesus' suffering. Point number two, what can we learn from Joseph's life and from this verse? First, uh, point number two, trust and faithfulness through suffering. Trust and faithfulness through suffering. We need to remember that when Joseph said this, he was on, he was, it was after his suffering. And he had the unique privilege of having God's clear purposes for his suffering. He saw the exact purpose of God through his pain. You and I don't experience the same privilege. You and I don't have a clear answer to why we're going through something painful, why God is putting us through that test. We definitely don't get it in the midst of the test, and sometimes we don't even see it afterwards. But we know and we're instructed that we can still trust God's good purpose and we can be faithful to his will, just like Joseph was. Joseph's life was marked by faithfulness. He's faithful through his suffering. He obeys God. He does not use suffering as an excuse for sin or a reason to distrust God. Sometimes people use suffering as an excuse for their sin. They take a past evil that happened to them and they use it like a hall pass to do whatever they want. It's a hall pass for bitterness, for promiscuity, for unbelief. You know, I've been hurt by the church, so I'm leaving the faith altogether. Or I've gone through a lot, so you know I can fool around a little bit. And God will understand. Sometimes even when we apologize to close family, we apologize for an angry outburst. We subtly blame shift and say, oh, it's just the stress talking. Or I've been going through a lot at work. Almost to justify that sinful outburst. No, no, no. We can't use suffering as an excuse for sin. Joseph doesn't do that. We don't see these excuses in his life. Sure, he, again, he's a sinner. He must have failed at some point. He's a sinner like the rest of us, but Scripture does not mention that. It only highlights Joseph's trust and faithfulness to God, almost as if to say, hey, it's possible when you go through immense suffering for you and I to still trust and obey God. It is possible. And so we need to maintain that even when we don't have all the answers. The third point, the third truth that we can take away is that God's good and our good includes suffering. God's good and our good includes suffering. I just reached for my back pocket as if that was my phone. It's funny, it's reactions. First, let's do a definition of God's good. What is God's good? Well, God's good is that which aligns with his purpose and his will. It's his purpose and his will that is good. God's plan is good. Okay, so that, and Jesus said, only God is good. So good is by definition what God says it is. 
Now, what is God's purpose or his will for our lives? I've summarized this before, summarize it again. Two things. What's God's will for my life? What does God want from me today, tomorrow, and the days to come? Two things. Salvation and sanctification. If you don't know Christ, he wants you to be saved. 1 Timothy 2 says, This is good. It's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. So some of you in here today have have refused the gospel. You're still refusing to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. God wants you today to surrender. To surrender by faith and trust in Jesus Christ. This innocent man who was sacrificed on a cross to pay for your sins. Trust in him today. Now, what about for those of us who do have salvation? What's God's will for your life? The second S word, sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Let's break it down even more. God's will for your life is that you would have saving faith in Jesus Christ and that you would become more like Jesus Christ. His will for your life is not that you would have a lot of money, that you'd be healthy, and that you would find success in the American dream. It's not God's will for your life. Let's look at a popular verse that is often misused and misunderstood. Why don't you turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. This is a great cross-reference to the life of Joseph and Joseph's statement in Genesis 50-20. Romans 8-28. How many times have you heard this verse preached from a pulpit or on a wall of a house or embroidered into a pillow, what does it mean? Look at Romans 8, 28. And we know, Paul says, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. There's another all things. Does all things include evil things, bad things? Hard things. Yes. All things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Notice there that good and purpose are put together. So the good in your life, the ultimate good, is linked to God's purpose for you. And God's grand purpose of redemption and salvation. But you cannot separate verse 28 from verse 29. Let's keep reading. Again, the good is for those who love God, those who are called, and look at verse 29, for those whom he foreknew. That is whom God set his love upon before the foundation of the earth. He predestined, here is God charting their purpose, charting their destiny, predestined. God pre-planned what for their life? To be conformed to the image of His Son. So that you, the good, God's purpose, His predestined plan for you is that you, if you're a child of God, would be more like Jesus. And that's a wonderful thought, isn't it? Oh, don't you want to be like Jesus? When you think about becoming like Jesus, you think about 
man, I want to love like Jesus loved. I want to have a a gentle demeanor like Jesus. I want to have compassion for the lost like Jesus. Man, I want to be wise like Jesus. I want to be able to respond to attacks like he responded to the Pharisees. I want to endure like Jesus. Endure through hardship. I want to persevere through suffering. Oh man, I wish I had the work ethic of Jesus. I wish I had the discipline to wake up every morning, to read the Word, to be in prayer. We think about Jesus' character. And we want to be more like Jesus. Well, in that same line of thought, when you want to be more like Jesus, have you ever thought, I want to suffer like Jesus suffered? Probably not. But isn't that the call? What did Jesus say if you want to be his disciples? Deny yourself and take up what? The cross and follow me. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, rejoice. Rejoice when you're persecuted for my name's sake. What else did Jesus say? He says, listen, the servant doesn't surpass the master. The disciple doesn't surpass the teacher. You will suffer just as I've suffered. If if the world hated me, they will also hate you. So know that when God wants you to become more like Jesus, what does that include? Suffering. God has suffering, hardship, trouble planned for your life. Every Christian will suffer. That's a promise of the New Testament. It's amazing to me that pastors, preachers, churches promote a suffering-free Christianity when you see nothing of the sort in Scripture. You don't see an easy believism. Just rationally assent to the idea of Jesus and then live however you want to live. Live a comfortable life. Live after the American dream. Worship your idols and you can have Jesus too. There's no such thing in Scripture To follow Jesus, to become more like Him, means that you'll suffer like Him. And you'll suffer at times unjustly. But that is God's intention. One of the threads He weaves into the life of His children to become more like Christ and to accomplish His ultimate good. Because through the momentary and light afflictions, you're preparing for yourself an eternal weight of glory. Jesus says rejoice when you suffer persecution in this life. Because in the next life, you'll be rewarded greatly with treasures in heaven. Paul even says, it is, sorry, not Paul, but Peter says, rejoice in so far. What do you rejoice at as you share in Christ's sufferings? Count it a privilege to suffer as Christ suffered. So that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Listen. If you're looking for a comfortable, easy, prosperous, healthy, and wealthy life, don't look to Jesus. Look somewhere else. But to follow Jesus, if you want life, if you want real life, eternal weight of glory, if you want joy unending and not a happiness that fades, peace that surpasses understanding, and not just peace in the midst of the good times of your life, If you want the pleasure of forgiveness, of righteousness, and a right relationship with God, 
If you want that, then deny yourself, pick up the cross, and follow Jesus. And you will taste and see what the psalmist writes in Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that when you do that, the Lord is good. And blessed is that man who takes refuge in him. If you want the ultimate good this morning, trust in a sovereign God who has purposes through your pain. As you trust Him, faithfully walk according to His steps, become more like Jesus Christ, and you will experience true life, true joy, true peace, even in the midst of the most difficult suffering that you go through in this life. Let's pray. Father, You have given us every reason to trust You. You have been faithful to every promise You've made. And we assume and know that you will be faithful to all the promises to fill them all in the end. We look forward to that day when we're face to face with our Savior who did suffer unjustly for our crimes, for our sin, but in his suffering paid for them. He atoned for them on the cross so that we could have right relationship with you. This incredible, great injustice of history, accomplished our great salvation. So we're thankful for that. And we know that when we go through suffering in this life, when we suffer trials, when we're hurt by people, we know, God, that people mean evil for evil. It's because we're sinners. And sin hurts. But God, we have a great hope in our suffering because you mean that evil for good. Your ultimate purpose is our salvation and our sanctification. What a joy it is to share in the sufferings of Christ, our Savior. To be like Him, our example. Not just in the the great character, which we do want. We want to be holy. We want to be patient. We want to be loving. But we want to, Lord, we want to share in His sufferings. And even saying that, it's hard. But give us a desire to be like Christ and to endure through the sufferings that you have intended for our lives so that we'd be more like him and that we would get that eternal weight of glory in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.